I'd ask you if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Kelsey read for us from Matthew 18 earlier, and we will be dealing with that passage, but we're also going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning as well. And so I want to read that chapter for us. If you have uh, God's Word, if you would please stand out of respect for God's Word while I read that portion of Scripture to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. It says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual morality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did, th- who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who's been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice or evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have had to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler, do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. And again, we're going to be looking at more than one passage of scripture for us. Again, that's something that's quite unusual, but As I kind of set up the sermon this morning, I I want you to think of a a situation perhaps you've experienced where a crowd gathers in a large room and the room is darkened, the lights are low, the buzz of conversation is heard all around, and then all of a sudden the lights illuminate a stage and on the stage there are musicians and the musicians begin to play, there are drums and guitars, and they lead the congregation, the assembled group in song after song of uplifting music. And there are lights and fog and lasers that are all kind of pulsing with the beat, and it is a great show. And then someone prays a brief prayer, and someone reads a passage of Scripture, and then the pastor begins the sermon. And it's a 30-minute, something of a motivational talk that's focused on how to become kind of a better person or a better version of yourself. There are a lot of personal anecdotes. There are a lot of practical insights. And then the sermon ends. And the band leads the assembly in a few more songs, another set of worship songs, and then it's over. And then many people leave pretty much immediately, but a few people do stay around after and talk. And those who leave are very glad that they've been there and that they've been able to serve the Lord by being there that morning. And friends, what I've just described is something of a typical worship service in many churches across our nation. It is kind of what it looks like. There are a few common themes. There are dark rooms. There are brightly lit stages, there are energetic music, there's a TED Talk-like speech, 
And then many people, after they simply just leave and they go on and do whatever they're going to do for the next week until they gather again the next Sunday morning to watch the show again, or sometimes they watch it online. But is that all there is to being a part of a local church? That's really my question this morning. Is that all there is to being a part of a local church that you come and you kind of consume the show and then you depart? Actually, the answer is no. When you look at the pages of the New Testament and the way the life in the, in the church is described, you see that, that actually there's this fundamental togetherness that should characterize life in a local church. So that when we gather together on Sunday morning, we should do so intentionally. We should do so thoughtfully. We should come together for the sake of worshiping God together, which involves singing together and praying together and hearing God's word read together and hearing God's word preached together and observing the Lord's Supper and baptism together. And beyond that, that togetherness should then characterize the rest of the week. That we should, as the people of God, be spending meaningful time together for the sake of fellowship and for the sake of ministry to one another. And that is, that's what you see when you look at the pages of the New Testament about what it was like in the life of the early church. So listen to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is the first time that Luke kind of pulls his camera back from this narrative of what, what the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit is doing in the early church. And he gives kind of an overview of what the Spirit is doing. He says this, they, that is the disciples, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. And if you had to summarize what that passage is, is really describing, what it's describing is a church that lived life together. It was intentional about relationships. They were aware of what it was that they were to do as those who followed Jesus. They were aware that they had a job to do that their job was to make disciples of Jesus Christ, that that was the mission that the Lord Jesus had given them, that they were to reach out to the lost with the gospel, which looked like developing friendships with non-believers, inviting them over perhaps for a meal at their home. They were to help each other grow in Christ's likeness. They were to bear with one another. Most fundamentally, most essentially, they were to help one another to heaven. That's what they were doing, walking side by side on the way to heaven. Christ Fellowship, we have the same job. That's the job that we've been entrusted with as well as members of this church. As followers of Jesus, who have committed ourselves to being a part of this local church, we have that same job of helping one another to heaven. We're going to see this as we study God's Word together this morning. Now, if you're just visiting with us this morning, you find yourself at a very unusual service at Christ Fellowship Church. This is a very unusual Sunday in many ways, because our normal practice is to work our way kind of passage by passage through books of the Bible. So we practice uh, expositional preaching, and expositional preaching is most essentially this. It's that the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. The sermon is flowing out of the passage so that the truth of God is being revealed for us to see. Well, the sermon this morning, while it is going to flow out of passages of Scripture, I trust, 
It is also going to be more topical, focused on two topics that the elders wanted me to address. We're going to address both the issue of church discipline. What is it? What, what is that about? Why should churches do that? Church discipline. And then also church membership. What, what is that? And what is the responsibility of church members? What is the job that church members have been given by the Lord Jesus? So both of those topics, both church discipline and church membership, are they clearly go together, and yet they are often misunderstood. And so we're going to need to do some careful thinking together this morning about these topics to understand how God wants us to live life together in the local church. My prayer, though, most especially, is that we will see that God has a job for us to do. And again, it is to help one another to heaven. There's going to be three truths. Kind of, the sermon's going to kind of build out on three truths as we work our way through Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and then other passages as well. Three truths if you're taking notes. First truth, local churches are commanded to exercise church discipline. Local churches are commanded to exercise church discipline. We'll see that most especially from Matthew 18. The second truth, church discipline makes church membership visible. What, what do we mean when we say church membership? Well, church discipline is something that makes the reality of church membership visible to a watching world and to those who are part of the church. And then truth number three, church members have a job to do. There's work for us to do as we live life together in this local church. Let's look at that first truth together then this morning. Local churches are commanded to exercise church discipline. Now this again, this, this practice of church discipline is something that is very misunderstood and it is also neglected by many churches. So uh, if you grew up in the church, it's very possible that you have never seen any church practice church discipline at all. That's particularly true if you grew up in a Baptist church, because many Baptist churches have abandoned the practice of church discipline. It was not always that way. There was a time when the Baptist churches understood the responsibility we had for one another to care for one another in this way. But when many people think of church discipline, and again, the idea of, of ultimately removing an unrepentant person, man or woman, from the membership of the church because he or she has refused to turn away from a lifestyle of unrepentant sin, when they hear that, they immediately kind of pull back and they think, that sounds harsh. Uh, it sounds unloving. That sounds ungracious and judgmental. But when you study the New Testament, and it's all throughout the New Testament, when you study the New Testament, you see it's actually the humble and loving response of a church that takes sin seriously, that understands that sin is deadly, that understands that we actually do have a, a responsibility to exercise a watchfulness over one another so that we all make it, so that we all continue to follow Jesus. So let me ask you, what would you do if you discovered that a member of the church was involved in an adulterous affair? What would you do if you found out that a business owner in the church was known in the community for being dishonest and for having dishonest business practices? What would you do if you saw a pattern, not an instance, but a pattern of gossip or a pattern of slander or a pattern of lying in the life of another, another member in the church? What would you do if you saw a pattern of angry outbursts in the life of a fellow church member? How would you go after a fellow church member who was routinely ignoring the assembly of the church, was refusing to gather through non-attendance? In other words, how would you practically help someone in the church who's caught in sin? 
How would you go about that? Well, actually, the Bible lays out precisely how we are supposed to go about that through this practice of church discipline. Actually, it's the Lord Jesus himself, the most loving and gracious and humble. He's the one that teaches us about church discipline so that we, so that we learn what love really looks like. What love really looks like. He teaches us this in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Kelsey Rader read that for us earlier in the sermon. Let me read those verses again, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So that's the teaching, and that teaching is part of a sermon that the Lord Jesus gave towards the end of his ministry in Galilee, the northern part of Israel, as he's now moving towards the cross. He, he wanted to help his disciples understand how they were supposed to live life together in the church after he had ascended to heaven to his father once again, and he was very concerned that the followers of, of his, his followers in the church, would be marked by a, by a humility, by a concern for one another, and really by a zeal for reconciliation when there was brokenness in relationships within the church. And in verses 15 to 17 of Matthew 18, Jesus then teaches us about church discipline. What is church discipline? Fundamentally, most fundamentally, church discipline is a method of confronting in love a brother or sister who is caught in a pattern of sin so that he or she can be brought to repentance and restored to a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others in the church as well. So we have to understand, first and foremost, that the intent of church discipline is positive. Now, what we're after is not most especially uh, winning an argument or scoring points. What we're after most especially is winning our brother or sister away from the sin that has ensnared them so that they can follow Jesus. So that's the intent. The purpose of church discipline is ultimately restoration. We're trying to restore that person to a healthy and right relationship with God and to others in the church. So what's the process? Well, if you look at Matthew 18 again, verses 15 to 17, you see the Lord Jesus lay out a very clear process, and that process includes four steps. Let's look at those one at a time. Look at, at verse 15. Here's the first step. Jesus says, you are to go to your brother or sister in private and seek the restoration of your brother or sister. That's what it says in verse 15. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Uh, the way you do that is important. Galatians 6, 1 says we're to do that with a spirit of humility, lest we also be tempted. But in love and in humility, we're to go to our brother or sister, uh, whether they have sinned against us personally or whether we know of a pattern of sin in their life, and we are to privately and graciously and humbly confront them with the reality of that sin and call them to repentance. And Jesus says that if your brother or sister hears that word from you and turns back, you have won your brother or sister. That word won in the original language, it's actually a financial term. It speaks of financial gain. It's talking about earning back, if you will. You've gained back something that was of value to you. Your brother or sister that was wandering away and in danger of being lost has now been gained because you've been faithful to go in love and humility and to speak with him or her about the sin that's in their life. Your relationship with the brother is restored. And here's the wonderful thing. 
the matter is done. The grace of the gospel covers it because everyone in this church and everyone on earth is sinful. We are all sinful and in need of the grace of God. But what should you do if your brother or sister rejects you? What do you do? Well, well, there's a second step. The Lord Jesus tells us about in verse 16. He says, take one or two witnesses along with you and continue to seek the restoration of the erring brother or sister. So verse 16, but if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. So the brother is unwilling to listen, doesn't think it's serious, doesn't want to talk with you about it, and wants to continue on in a lifestyle of sin against God. What happens next? Well, the the circle of confrontation at that point must be enlarged. But notice, it's just a little bit enlarged. Uh, Bring one or two along with you, one or two witnesses, so that you can together humbly confront the brother again and call him or the sister again and call her to repentance. Who are these one or two others? Well, there's actually a debate among commentators whether or not these one or two others are eyewitnesses to the sin or not, but it actually must be that they are eyewitnesses because of the scripture that Paul quotes. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which says, one witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person. Whatever Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And the hope is that the additional pressure of two or three others coming and saying, brother, sister, we know this is true of you. Uh, You're being led away in sin, and we're we're calling you back. We're calling you to repent, to turn away from that. The hope and the prayer is that that will be sufficient to help the person kind of wake up and snap out of it and realize that they're wandering away from Christ and from life and from all that is good. That he or she would turn back. I personally know of one instance where a seminary professor was, uh, he was confronted by one person over an instance of adultery that he was involved with. He refused to repent when one person confronted him for that adultery, but then ultimately two others came, one of whom was his son. And it was the pressure of them saying, we know this is true of you. You're in sin." that ultimately led him to kind of wake up from, from, the, from the confusion, kind of the insanity of sin, realize what he was doing, led him to repentance. He wasn't able to continue to serve as a seminary professor, but you know what? He was rescued from soul-killing sin. And it was a good thing. The witnesses together helped him to see his need for repentance. But again, what if the brother doesn't repent? Well, there is a third step. Jesus says, you're to tell it to the church so that the church can seek his repentance. That's what it says in the first part of verse 17. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So the attempt to keep the matter to just a few people and understand that that is, that's, we're trying to do everything we can to protect the reputation of this person. Uh, this is an act of love as we're trying to deal with this matter quietly, trying to restore brother or sister quietly, but sometimes that attempt fails and there needs to be a last-ditch effort at that point. And that last-ditch effort looks like telling the church so that the church can then mobilize and move towards that sinning brother or sister and call them to repentance. And notice, again, the goal of all of this is that the brother or sister would repent and turn from their sin. And if they do, the matter's done and there's rejoicing. And the gospel covers our sin, but, but if he or she does not repent, well, then there is a fourth and final step that the Lord Jesus lays out. 
the brother or sister is to be removed from the membership of the church and no longer allowed to participate in communion. And that's what excommunication refers to. They're no longer allowed to participate in communion, and that's significant. Jesus says, if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Now, what is Jesus saying when he's saying, let him be like a, a Gentile and a tax collector to you? Well, he's ultimately commanding them to treat the unrepentant brother or sister uh, as a non-believer. You see, Gentiles and tax collectors were outside of the covenant community of Israel. It's a way of saying that there's now a separation, right? There's a separation between Gentiles and tax collectors in the community of Israel. In the same way, now something has changed about the relationship between the church and this brother or sister who has refused to repent. There's not sufficient evidence in that person's life that they're truly a follower of Jesus anymore. And so Jesus commands the church to treat them that way. You're lacking evidence that you're truly a believer. How do we show that? How does the church demonstrate that? Uh, the church actually bars them from taking communion. Because when we take communion, we are covenanting once again together, saying that we are the people of God in this place. It's the family meal that shows we all believe in Jesus, that shows the oneness we have in Christ. What is the church doing when she excommunicates a member? Well, the Roman Catholic Church for hundreds of years used that word excommunication to indicate that they had the authority to keep someone from salvation or to damn them, and that's simply false. The church does not have any authority over the souls of people. Well, is excommunication then uh, like a shunning, like the Amish church? where you join the Amish church, but then you leave the Amish church, and the Amish church treats you as if you're dead? Is that what excommunication is? And the answer to that is no. Actually, there is no place we would rather a person who has been excommunicated or disciplined out of the membership of our church to be than to be with us on Sunday morning hearing the gospel. Because that's where people who don't know Jesus, that's where they need to be. They need to be under the sound of the gospel so that they can hear this message of salvation and repent and believe. Well, that's what we're doing. You see, excommunication is the way that we as a church, listen, formally say, publicly say, that while we're not God, and while we could be wrong, while this person could be a genuine believer who's just in a serious position of sin, it's possible, we do not, and this is important to understand, we do not see enough evidence of ongoing repentance and faith in his or her life to put our seal on it and saying, we believe this person is a genuine follower of Jesus. And so in a formal way, we say, we no longer believe this person is a follower of Jesus, and we're now going to work for him or her to come to saving faith in Christ so that he or she might be rescued. We don't know, again, for sure, that the person isn't a Christian who's just seriously unrepentant. And yet, we cannot allow that person to continue to uh, participate in communion as if there is no issue, as if nothing has happened. No, we don't shun like the Amish, but there should be some, some brokenness of relationship. Something has changed. And so when we interact with this person, there should be an endeavor or desire to, to call them to repentance so that they would turn away from their sin whenever we have the opportunity to do so. So that's what the Lord 
teaches us about church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Now, give me, let me give you briefly three reasons why we practice church discipline at Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg. The first reason is that church discipline is loving to the one who has sinned. Again, this is motivated by love, a desire to love this person well. In, in verse 15 of Matthew 18, Jesus says, If he listens to you, you have won your brother. In other words, the brother was in, in danger of being lost. He was in a place of spiritual jeopardy. But then through your faithfulness of disciplining, you are calling him or calling her back to a place of spiritual safety, keeping them from wandering away. And that's the goal. The goal is to help them see how serious the sin is so that they're not deceived and they don't fall away and they don't run away from Christ. We want them to turn away from sin. After all, sin is a lot like carbon monoxide. Uh, When carbon monoxide is in your house, you can't really tell it's there, but what happens is you just kind of slowly go to sleep and you don't wake up again. And sin does that. Sin blinds the eyes. Sin hardens the hearts. And it's over time. You see, no one ever wakes up one morning and says, you know, I think I'm going to be involved in an adulterous relationship today. No one says that. No, that, that, that act of sin, well, it takes place over time with little compromise after little compromise after little compromise. No one ever says, you know, I think I'm going to just uh, abandon Christianity today. No, that's a hardening process that ultimately reveals what's in the heart and ultimately reveals a lack of faith, a true saving faith in a person's heart if they do ever abandon Christ. But the process is a hardening process that takes place over time, and we are commanded to love one another enough to encourage one another every day, lest any of us should be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, unless we should fall away. Church discipline is the method the Lord has given us to interrupt the hardening process of sin in the life of a brother or sister. We're we're like the fireman that rushes into the house that's filled with carbon monoxide, and we shake the man in order to wake him up so that he does not perish. The shaking may be hard, but the intention is loving. And the idea is that he or she would be rescued. There's a second reason why we practice church discipline. Church discipline protects the one who was sinned against. Well, that's really the situation that Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 18. What, what do you do if someone sins against you, hurts you in a deep way? Or, you know, what happens in a relationship in the church when someone sins against someone else and nothing is done about it? Does it get better on its own? No, most of the time what happens is a bitterness sets in. The situation kind of festers. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 tells us that, that if it's not dealt with, that kind of bitterness can spread and the love of many can turn cold. Church discipline gives the one who was sinned against the ability to, in love, go after the one who sinned against him or her. It gives us a method by which we can seek to reconcile with the other person. You see, you see the, the, the woman who sinned against in the church isn't helpless. She doesn't have to wallow in bitterness and frustration. Actually, no, she can do the loving thing, which is to go and talk with her brother or talk with her sister about what has happened and call that person away from the sin to repentance so that the relationship can be reconciled. She loves her brother or sister by pursuing them in church discipline. And as she does so, she protects her own heart. So Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 says, Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Don't do it. Rebuke your brother, rebuke your neighbor directly, 
and you will not incur guilt because of him. So church discipline is a a way for the person who sinned against to, to be able to reconcile the situation. Reason number three, church discipline honors the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life on the cross so that his people might be holy. Uh, Jesus died with intentionality. There was a purpose to his sacrifice. Listen to how Paul puts this in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, a people who are what? Eager to do good works. You see, we must be faithful to exercise church discipline because Christ died for us with intentionality that we might be a holy people, uh, not a people who are characterized by ongoing and unrepentant sin. Friends, that really gets to the gospel that we preach. Uh, The good news that we preach in Christ's fellowship is that God created us. The holy God created us. He made us to have a relationship with him. He wanted us to walk with him in joy and and in in communion and in holiness, that our relationship with God would be marked by those things. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. They turned against him, and they said it'd be better for them to live their own way, to make their own decisions, to do what they wanted to do rather than what God has said And we sinned in them, and because we come from them, we have all inherited that same sinful nature of rebellion against God that looks most fundamentally like this. I'm going to make my life about me. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to pursue my own vision of my own happy life. Friend, that's the very essence of sin. It is taking God off the throne of the universe, and it's putting myself right there. And friend, I have done that. And you have as well. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us, none of us have lived the kind of life that would enable us to stand before a holy God and be accepted based on how we have lived. Instead, no, if we were to stand before God on our own, there would be no hope for us. But then this is where the good news comes in. And the good news is this, that there was one who was perfectly holy. His name was Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He always obeyed the will of his heavenly father. He always loved others in self-sacrificial, self-denying ways. And he came most fundamentally on a rescue mission for broken sinners like us. And to do that, he offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice, bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And now there's this free offer of salvation that's given to all who will. If you will turn from your sin, if you will turn from trying to make your life about you, and instead acknowledge that God is the Lord and that you've sinned against him, and if you will realize that Jesus is a glorious and gracious Savior who will even now receive you, you will be saved, which is to say Jesus will be your Savior, which is to say all the sins that you have committed, past, present, and future, will be completely wiped away, and you will for the first time in your life lay down your head this evening and know that it is well with your soul and know that your conscience has been cleansed And it's a free gift. It's a free gift for you this morning. But it's a gift that has a profound impact on the way that we live. So that when we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We're made new in him. And we're given new desires. And it's a desire to be like Jesus. And to walk in holiness. 
And that's why Christ died. He died so that we might become like him. Oh, friends, it's important for us as a church that we would be marked by a zeal for personal holiness that doesn't look arrogant, doesn't look like Pharisees wandering around showing off how well they can pray or how many Bible verses they know. Instead, it looks like humility and grace and love and service. Ultimately, it looks like Jesus. And we must practice church discipline as a church, and we do because we want this church to honor the Lord. And that looks like us being a church that's characterized by holiness, by Christ-likeness. Friends, there's so much more we could say about that. But if you, if you just think about it, looking at Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, we see we must exercise church discipline because it helps us fight against sin and because it helps us honor King Jesus who gave himself so that we might be holy. But there is more we can say about church discipline. And this is where we transition now to the second truth we're going to discuss this morning. Church discipline is actually the means that God has used or that God uses to draw a line between those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. Drawing a visible line in the world between those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. That brings us to our second point, second truth this morning. Church discipline makes church membership visible. Church discipline makes church membership visible. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again. So flip over in your Bible to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want us to look most especially at verses 9 to 13. And as you turn there, I, I want you to understand that I do have an agenda for this point. And the agenda is, I think, a godly one. But I do want to convince you that church membership, which is this, it's, it's being publicly recognized as the part of a local church. And you're aware of who your spiritual leaders are in the church. And you have a commitment to love and serve others in the church. That is not only a good and wise thing, but it's a biblical thing. This is something the Bible actually teaches. I do believe one of the clearest places we see the biblical nature of church membership is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Look with me at verses 9 to 13. Paul says here, speaking to the local church of Corinth, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd had to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler, do not even eat with such a person. What business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outside. Outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, if you don't know the situation that's going on there, Paul is addressing issues in the life of this church. And in 1 Corinthians 5, he's addressing a very serious matter where there was a, a man in the church uh, who was having a sexually immoral relationship with, with his stepmother. And the church was not, well, not dealing with that. Uh, instead, the church seemed to be proud in some way. They've been confused in some way about, about this really heinous sin. And so Paul's speaking to them, and, and, and he goes through this chapter, and he's explaining what it is that they need to do. In verses 5 and 8, Paul, verses 5 to 8, Paul warns them that the leaven of sin will work its way through the church. They have to be on guard against that. And so they needed to address this sin. They couldn't just sweep it under the rug, which happens far too often. Then in verses 9 to 11, Paul instructs the Corinthians on their relationship to those who are outside the church, 
and to those who are inside the church. He had previously written them another letter. The Holy Spirit has not preserved that letter for us, but in that letter, he had encouraged them not to associate with sexually immoral people. But you see, the Corinthians had missed the point. They thought he was talking about sexually immoral people outside of the church. They weren't to associate with them. And Paul says he didn't mean that, because if he had said that, then they would have had to have gone and looked for another world, because this world is characterized by sexual immorality. That is still true some 2,000 years later. Instead, Paul meant that they were not to associate with anyone who claimed to be a Christian, but was sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or swindler. And then in verses 12 to 13, Paul goes on and he tells the, the Corinthian church that their role is not to judge those who are outside, but actually, and this is difficult sometimes for us to hear, their job was actually to judge those who are inside. Those who judge outside or, or those who are on the outside are judged by God. But those who are on the inside, well, that's the matter of the church. And there's a job for the church to do. We are to judge those who are inside, it says in verse 12. What does that mean? Well, we just studied what that means when we look in Matthew 18. And we talked about this issue of church discipline and understand that in the church of Corinth, there was this man who was engaged in public and unrepentant sin. And they needed to deal with that through excommunication. In verse 13, Paul commands them, remove the evil person from among you. Now, we've taken the time to go through 1 Corinthians 5 because I want us to have this context in our minds as we ask one question about this passage. It's a question about church membership, and the question is, is church membership biblical? Uh, being a publicly recognized part of a local church, is that a biblical matter? Now, if you read your Bible, you will not find a verse that says, you shall become the member of a particular local church. But even if the church does not spell out the matter in that way, the idea of church membership itself is still biblical. Evidence for that is throughout the New Testament. One of the clearest places is in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 to 13. So let me now give you two pieces of evidence for the biblical nature of church discipline from this passage. The first piece of evidence is this. The Bible states explicitly that there is an inside and an outside to the local church. Look at verses 12 to 13. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Verses 12 to 13, Paul is not addressing all churches that exist. He's not addressing the universal church. He is addressing the local church, this church of Corinth, and he says to these Corinthian believers, and he points out to them that there are two distinct groups of people. There are those who are inside the fellowship of that church, and then there are those who are outside the fellowship of that church. Those inside were those who had been publicly recognized as a part of that fellowship. Those who were outside had not. So there was a line of separation, as it were, between the two groups, those who are inside and those who are outside. What was that boundary line? Well, the Bible doesn't give it a name. But we call that line of separation that exists between those who are publicly recognized within the church and those who are not, those who are on the outside, we call that line of separation church membership. Other churches may call it something else. They may call it partners or some other name. Whatever it's called, church membership is a way of publicly recognizing those who are inside the fellowship of the church, and those who are not. So the church members are inside the fellowship of the local church, 
There are those who are publicly recognized by the church as Christians who are part of that local church. Just as this man was publicly recognized as a Christian who was a part of the local church of Corinth in Paul's day. And notice that the church has one set of responsibilities for those who are inside and another for those who are outside. Christians in local churches are not to judge those who are outside of that local church. That's not a responsibility. That's not our jurisdiction. But they are to judge those who are inside the church. And that brings us to our second piece of evidence. Church discipline makes the line of church membership distinctly visible. How? As that person who was inside the church is now moved beyond the line of church membership to outside the local church, where the church makes a distinction and says, this person who we thought was a Christian, we can no longer affirm that this person is a Christian because of his or her ongoing unrepentant attitude towards sin. What does that look like to do that? Look at verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And I love that last line, so that his spirit may be saved. Again, you see the goal is restoration, it's love, it's, it's reclaiming that which is lost. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13, Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. It is very clear in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul is calling upon the church of Corinth to do something very dramatic in the life of this man who had been sinning with his stepmother. They were to purge the evil person from among them. They were to exercise church discipline on this man. They were to move him from inside the membership of the church beyond the line of church membership out into the world, which is significant. The action is so serious that Paul described it as delivering the man over to Satan, which is to say that they were to remove him from the realm of Christ, that is the church, to the realm of Satan, that is the world. In other words, as we discussed in Matthew 18, they were no longer to consider the man a Christian or permit him to take communion. Instead, they were to treat him like a non-believer, which is to say they were to try to win him to Christ. Share the gospel with him and call him or her to repentance. He was no longer inside the church, you see. Something had happened. He was moved from the inside of the church. Now he's moved to the outside of the church because the church had exercised church discipline. And when they exercised church discipline, they made that line of church membership who is publicly recognized as belonging to Jesus, well, they, they made that very visible. It became clear. There are several other pieces of evidence to support the biblical nature of church membership. I know that I'm giving you a lot this morning, but I want to give you two more pieces of evidence that support this. And here's the thing, brother or sister, it matters. And we're taking the time to help you understand this because it does matter. Uh, a third piece of evidence, Paul speaks of churches as recognized wholes, where, where the members of the church knew who belonged on the inside of the church and who was not on the inside of the church. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, Paul goes on to instruct the Corinthians again in another letter that he writes to them a little later on. And there he instructs the church to welcome back into their fellowship one who had been disciplined out of the fellowship. Now, it's very possible that that man in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is the same man as in 1 Corinthians 5. I hope that's the case. We're not sure at any rate what happened. Paul says a majority of the church disciplined the man. 
Now that's important because the only way to have a majority, which is 51% or more, is you have to have a totality. You have to have a recognized whole. You have to have a 100%. And Paul knew that most of the believers in that local church had exercised church discipline in that issue. There was a recognized whole to the church who's on the inside. A final piece of evidence for this morning the author of Hebrews commands Christians to obey the elders of their local church. In Hebrews 13, 17, not like a general, it is important to understand that elders do not have the authority of command. I cannot tell you to take out the trash. And if I ever do tell you to take out the trash, it might be good for you to graciously look at me and say, no, can't do that. Because my authority begins and ends with this book. And the authority of the other pastors of this church begins and ends with this book so that we speak where this book speaks and we don't speak where this book does not speak. And yet, the Bible is very clear that there is an obedience that is to be given to the elders, that we are supposed to obey them. Here's the thing. The only way it's possible for the elder to know who belongs inside the church and who should be obeying their spiritual authority is for there to be a recognized whole for there to be something of a membership. After all, listen, the elders of Christ Fellowship have no spiritual authority over the members of Smith Memorial Baptist Church on the other side of town. We have no spiritual authority there. But we do have spiritual authority over the recognizable flock that the Lord has entrusted to our care here at Christ Fellowship. Friends, the Bible never says you must be a member of a local church. But the Bible does assume everywhere that every Christian will be a member of a local church. One of the clearest pieces of evidence for that is the way church discipline makes church membership visible when someone is moved from within the church membership to outside of the church membership. So what's the application? Friend, if you're not a member of a local church where you have a recognized relationship with spiritual leaders who know that they're responsible for you and you know that you have a responsibility for your other brothers and sisters within that church, you should do that. You should join a church. You should find a gospel-preaching church and you should plug in there and serve because that's what the Bible commands you to do. And it's important. Now, now why is it important? Why have we taken all the time to talk about that? Well, there's a third truth this morning. Church members have a job to do. There's a job to do. So remember kind of the, at the beginning of the sermon, I described the involvement of many Christians in the church and they, they come on Sundays and they watch a carefully choreographed church service. They say hi to a few friends and then they leave. But, but when you look at the pages of the New Testament, life in the local church was more involved than that. There was more togetherness there. There was more time spent. There was more ministry Instead, church members should come to the church with a lunch pail, as it were, ready to work because there's a job for us to do. So what is then the job of church members? Well, uh, it's contained throughout the New Testament and the Old. What is the job of church members? There's far more than we're going to be able to say this morning, but I do want to give you four aspects of our job as those who are members of a church. A first aspect of our job, church members are to display the wisdom of God to watching angelic intelligences through their relationships in the church. Ephesians chapter 3. If you have your Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 3. And I want you to look at verses 8 to 10. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. Here's Paul speaking. 
Paul says here, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ, and to shed to light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authority in the heavens. And friends, that is a cosmic thing. I don't think we think about it like that, but Paul is doing this. He's rejoicing in his ministry of the gospel. Why? Because through preaching the gospel to Gentiles, that is non-Jews, he's bringing them into union with Jews who have put their trust in Jesus and they become one body. Those who are formerly enemies are now reconciled through the gospel. And in their real and tangible relationships in local churches, watching angelic intelligence to see the wisdom of God who is able to reconcile those who were enemies, but now are brothers and sisters and are walking in unity and love despite their worldly differences. And Christ's fellowship, when we dwell together, despite our differences, differences that are, are ethnic differences or education level differences or socioeconomic status differences, when we dwell in unity as a church, God's wisdom is displayed in this church. And that's one aspect of the job we have to do to realize that our relationships matter not only for our unity as a church, but for the glory of God being displayed, the wisdom of God being displayed. So what is our job? Our job is to love one another and demonstrate that, that through our relationships, we have this unity that's not based in worldly similarity, but it's based on a heavenly unity we received in Christ. There's a second aspect of our job as church members. We are to minister our spiritual gifts for the good of the body. So Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 8. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 8. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to you, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching, in teaching. If exhorting, in exhortation. Giving with generosity. Leading with diligence. Showing mercy with cheerfulness. So when you look at Romans, 13, or excuse me, Romans 12, it's very clear that, that every member of the body, and that's where we get this imagery of church membership, by the way, they've been spiritually gifted to serve the body, and in, in different ways. Some teach, some administrate, some demonstrate mercy, some show forth generosity in the way that they live, and yet all must be intentional about ministering those spiritual gifts so that the body is built up, so that the body is cared for, so that the mission which Christ has given us as a church, which is to make disciples of all nations, so that that work goes forward. A third aspect of our job, church members are to protect the gospel, Protect the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 to 4. Paul says this there. But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit which you had not received, or a different gospel which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Here Paul's, he's really rebuking the church, isn't he? Why is he rebuking the church? Because the church was permitting false teachers who were teaching false gospels to be within the church and they were not disciplining them. They were not removing them from the church. And that's a problem because it is a job, listen, of church members, not just church leaders, to preserve the purity of the gospel of the doctrine that's taught at this church. 
The Corinthians were failing to do their job. The gospel was being compromised. In Christ's fellowship, the gospel can be compromised in our day as well. That's why one of our aspects as members of the church is to protect the gospel. Now you protect the gospel, brother or sister, when you refuse to listen to false teaching. That means very practically, if I or any other pastor of Christ's fellowship ever get up and begin to preach a false gospel, you should be very concerned about that. You should call us to repent of that. If we are unwilling to do so, you should fire us. That's how you'll protect the church. You also protect the church when you're careful about guarding the membership of the church so that the members of the church are regenerate. Remember, what we're saying when we have church membership, what we're saying is as best we can tell before the Lord, we're publicly acknowledging that this person preaches the right gospel and has a life that matches the truth of the gospel. We're saying we think this person is a Christian, but if we as a church ever become lax in church membership and we just say, hey, y'all, come on in. If the membership of the church is ever dominated by unregenerate people, friends, what will happen? The gospel will be lost. And if you doubt that, you can look at the spiritually dead churches that line the campus of William and Mary today. Friends, the gospel's been lost. There's a fourth aspect. Promote a culture of care in the church. And this one I love, and this one I am so grateful to God for because I see this in such abundance in our church. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 20 to 27. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 20 to 27. I know, I know I've given you a lot, but we're at the end. 1 Corinthians 12, 20 to 27. Paul says, As it is, there are many parts but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor, and our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. There'd be a genuine care there. So if one, one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. So here, Paul makes an argument in these verses that every member of the church is necessary for the body of Christ to function as God intends. That will be true in heaven when the universal church gathers for the first time and for all eternity, we glorify God in the way that we think and act and speak. But you know what? It's true now too. When that universal church is made visible to a watching world in local churches all across the world, and in those local churches, the members of those churches are focused on serving and caring for one another and instructing one another and challenging one another and rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep and providing care for the parts of the body that need that ministry and care. And that means Christ fellowship. Another aspect of our job as members of the church is to provide a, a culture of care for one another within the church, which demands that we are meaningfully involved in one another's lives, providing counsel and practical service and encouragement and support and correction and care whenever those things are needed. And let me just encourage you because by God's grace, I see this again and again and again. I see it in, in couples who reach out to those who are sick and bring them meals. I, 
I see it in an older couple who's recently reached out to a younger woman whose husband was being deployed to care for her. I've seen it in the ways that many members of the church have reached out to a member in our church who's struggling in a season of depression. I've seen it in the way that several of you have adopted college students and welcomed, you into, welcomed them into your home. I've seen it in the way that we, we put a, a sign up for providing meals for people and it's just all filled up the next day and the care is provided for. I see it in the way that many of you have made it your ministry to look for people who are new and to try to go around and smile and welcome them. And we want that culture of care as a church to continue and perhaps, brothers and sisters, one day soon, we're going to see that culture of care happen when our church loves someone enough to discipline them for unrepentant sin and call them to a repentance and a faith in Christ. May God, may God continue to be at work in the way he is in helping our church have a culture of care. So, do you see now why we can't just sit back and watch? Do you see now why we have to be involved in one another? Do you see that we have a job to do? We must hold one another accountable through church discipline to follow Jesus. We must together display the wisdom of God to watching angelic intelligences. We must minister our spiritual gifts for the good of the body. We must work together to protect the gospel that is taught in this church. And we must cultivate a culture of care in our church. And honestly, brothers and sisters, listen, that's just the beginning. Ultimately, our job is to help one another to heaven. And that's what we're saying. We're saying when you're a part of this church, we are going to, by God's grace, do our best to help you on your way to heaven. And we're trusting God to use you to do the same thing in our lives, helping us to heaven as well. And God, who began a good work in us, will be faithful to complete it. And we can praise him for that. And let's pray.